your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, the second book of the Kings, and the 23rd chapter. I'm going to read just one verse, and we're going to refer to verses after this and all the way back to chapter 22, and we will be talking about this. There was no king like him. If you would stand for the reading of the word. Second Kings, the 23rd chapter and the 25th verse. There was no king like him. This is the pen of inspiration. This is the truth. Hear it. Take it in. And as we preach, you can be listening and praying that you would be given ears to hear and hear the full weight because this message is for our day. 2 Kings 23, 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Father, we know we need you even now by your spirit for your glory Reveal Christ through what we're doing here today. Magnify him and help us understand more of the true depth of the gospel. Therefore, the depth of your love and the height of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You read something here about the greatest king. If I ask you, who was the greatest king of God's people in the Old Testament, who might you think? I know that the, the, what comes up to my mind immediately is King David, right? God even said that David was a man after his own heart. It says that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But David was not the greatest king of God's people. Our text today is not talking about David. Well, who's it talking about? Let me give you a clue. The greatest king also led the greatest revival the Israelites ever had. A lot of people talking about revival today and in other days, and we've heard of great revivals, and we read Psalm 85 this morning, and people want to get caught up in something. They need something more. They, Well, in Psalm 85 and in Second Kings chapters 22 and 23, we really do see a true revival. And so it's going to tell us what it looks like. Now in Second Kings 22, 2, we see how this greatest king, and it says, walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now that opening statement describing his life, tells you of his faithful reign. Isn't that an incredible thing? He walked all the ways. He didn't turn aside. He was doing that. But we see more at the end of this journey that we see in chapters 22 and 23 because it says there was no one like him before or after. That includes David. In 2 Kings 22 and 23, they describe this greatness of this king and this great unparalleled revival. Our text today says that this king turned to the Lord with all, think about these words, because you might recognize them in the words of Jesus in the New Testament. 
all his heart, all his soul, all his might, according to all the law of Moses, and that before him there was no king like him, nor did any like him arise after him. And in 2 Kings 22, verse 1, we see who this greatest king was. He was an eight-year-old boy whose name was Josiah. And he led the last revival of his people. Hmm. Now, the time of Josiah's reign was preceded by a time of spiritual declension. There was darkness. It was terrible. It had been going on for hundreds of years. But Josiah became stirred up and things began to happen as he sought the Lord faithfully and fervently. And in chapters 22 and 23, which we'll describe, he had the temple repaired. And when he did that, they found the written word of God. It was rediscovered, and the flames of revival were rekindled. Josiah realized how bad they had been and what they needed to do. So God-focused and God-ordained worship was reestablished. And the people renewed their commitment to God. Idols were removed. Idols were smashed. God granted repentance as people confessed their sins and separated themselves from those sins. It was specific things they were confessing and repenting of. And God was honoring their commitment. Things were changing. The blood sacrifices were reinstated. The fear of God was restored, and the people rejoiced. We always want to start with the rejoice. It's a revival because everybody's happy. What does a real revival look like? There's a road, there's a highway to that happiness. This was a true revival. Now, Josiah, this boy king, led a true revival that lasted, listen, his whole life. And his life is a testimony to what God can do through young people. Can you hear me? Young, young at heart, old, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that Josiah, you would think he wouldn't have been able to do it. He would have been handled by everybody else. And I'm sure people were helping him out until he got a little older. But he did incredible things, and all of it before he was 40 years old, because he didn't even live to be 40 years old. He reigned 31 years. He went to be 39 before he died. But his life is an example to the church of what true revival looks like. I don't mean to bash anybody else and what they think is revival or anything like that. I'm concerned about us. I'm concerned about what God's word says. I don't want to start with people. I want to start with us. In the beginning, God, not in the beginning, you. Always start with God. That helps you to be grounded and centered. So his life is an example to the church of what true revival looks like. So let's set the backdrop for Josiah's reign and see how great a king he was and what this revival was all about and how this revival came about. Now, Josiah's reign was in a time around 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. Between the fall of Israel, we're going to describe this, into Assyrian captivity and the fall of Jerusalem and all of Judah into Babylonian captivity. So he's right there in the middle of that. And the fall of Israel and the fall of Judah were directly attributed to apostasy, idolatry, and false worship. And one of the references that you probably recognize if you read your Bibles to false worship were the sites and shrines called the high places. We used to sing, going up to the high places, going up to the high places, going up to the high places, going to tear the devil's kingdom down. 
So you see these things over and over, and you might wonder what they are. Well, many of these high places, as they called, were called high places because they were on hills, built in the rural areas and also in the cities. And some were originally intended as places to worship the one true God, especially before the temple was built. And they'd pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, and then there'd be high places, but it didn't last long. Now, some were built this way as a remnant of previous pagan shrines. And some were built by God's people for the worship of other gods. Solomon himself set a bunch of these up for his wives. It was horrible. High places, generally speaking, were bad things. And Moses had warned all the way back in the book of Leviticus that this idolatry at the high places would ultimately lead to exile. And that is exactly what happened. The northern kingdom of Israel never stopped their idolatrous practices. And after King Solomon died in 931 B.C., the nation of Israel split in two. The ten northern tribes, geographically speaking, would continue to be called Israel, and it was led by Jeroboam. He was one of the elites in the society, like a general or an ambassador, however you want to look at it. And he became the leader of Israel whose capital was called Samaria. Recognize those names? Now, the two southern tribes would be called Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin, basically, and they were led by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Now, after the division, there arose no good kings of Israel. I can give you a chart called the kings of Judah and Israel shows good, bad, and ugly. And when you look at Israel's side, after they were split all the way till they were captive, By the Assyrians in 722 B.C., there was no good king. Every king after Jeroboam was bad or worse. And usually they're even described this way. They sinned the sin of Jeroboam, which is that he made golden calves and put them in the top part and the bottom part of Israel so people could go worship there and not go worship at the temple because then they'd go back to Judah. And so he said, this is where you worship. These are the gods. And he appointed priests just anybody that wanted to give money. Give me some cash. I'll let you be a priest. And he changed the way the feasts were and the times of them so that the people would not have their hearts pulled back to the true worship and pulled away by the false worship because it was, uh uh-oh, today, convenient. And it made them feel good. Not that feeling good is bad, but feeling good can be bad if it's leading you away from what God has said. So... You see all these kings of Israel and says, they sin the sin of Jeroboam. What an epitaph. They sin the sin of Jeroboam. They sin the sin of Jeroboam. But the southern kingdom of Israel, I mean, the northern kingdom of Israel, no good kings. The southern kingdom of Judah did have some good kings. They had some bad and awful ones too. But some of them reformed the idolatry. And it would be last for another 136 years till 586 B.C., when Judah went into the what's called the Babylonian captivity. So you'll hear things like people, smarty pants describing, they'll talk about pre-exilic prophets and post-exilic prophets. So it's good to know these things and who they were speaking to, Elijah and Elisha or Amos and these people. Now there were eight good kings of Judah, and some were highly commended and some were less commended. Again, just eight And some said they were good kings. They followed the Lord. But while six of these eight were said to be good, it also said that they did not remove the high places. That's in your notes there. 
In other words, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, they did not remove the high places. Only two kings actually were iconoclast. That word means idol smash. These are iconoclast. They do something totally different in a different way. So there's some lesson for you. Only two good kings of Judah. They were Hezekiah and Josiah. And they removed the high places. Now here's the thing about Josiah. He did more than that. He didn't just remove the high places in the southern kingdom. Even though the northern kingdom had more than 100 years of being captive by the Assyrians, he went up there and smashed their idols too. That's what he was about, this boy king. He had the fever. (laughs) It was to smash the idols. He repaired the broken down temple. He rediscovered the book of the law and recommitted the people to it. And he removed all the idols and such from the temple. He, now, it's incredible. <laughs> he removed all the idols and such from the temple. He deposed the priests from the temple and obliterated all the places and practices and all this false worship in Judah. And then, like I said, he went beyond Judah and went into the former northern kingdom of Israel. Now listen, this is, in, this is incredible, and it's in your notes there. The false worship that the wicked Jeroboam had instituted and other kings had increased was still going on 300 years later. They needed revival, but they were already gone. But it was 100 years after Israel had gone into Assyrian captivity. Now... I want to turn to chapter 23, and let's look at verses 15 and 17. Are you with me? Say amen. Amen. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, that's one of the places that Jeroboam said, this is where you worship now. Chapter 23, 2 Kings, verse 15 through 17. Moreover, in other words, and he did more than just reform Judah. Israel wasn't even around anymore, and he was going to get rid of that stuff. The high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, wow, who made Israel to sin. Yikes. That altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned it, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah pole. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it. You don't want to know. According to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things then he said what is that monument i see and the men of the city told him it is the tomb of the man of god who came from judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at bethel you see when jeroboam started his reign and he had this worship going on a prophet came and predicted what happened 300 years later it's found in first kings 13 1 and 2 And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar and said, O altar, altar, listen. Thus says the Lord God, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, 300 years. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you josiah destroyed all the high places and dug up all the graves of the false priests and burned them on the altar and any priests who were still there he killed and burned them on the altars also 
Josiah did this at Bethel and also at Samaria. And then let's read verses 21 through 23. Are you with me? And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, so now he's 26, halfway through his reign. You see, this revival kept going. There was stuff that kept happening. He kept being an iconoclast. He kept going that extra mile. He was going to have revival no matter what it cost. Imagine digging up the bones and throwing them on the altar, burning them and then burning the altar. And then, hey, who are these people over here? Burn them too. Oh, my. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. It was the greatest Passover In the history of Israel or Judah, this was the greatest revival that ever happened, led by the greatest king that ever happened. He also ordered the removal of all private household gods and prohibited all forms of spiritism and fortune-telling. Wow. They don't just have a book and record burning. He goes into your house and makes sure you ain't got any sneaking around there. I'm not going to do that. What if I said, I'm going to find out who's watching this and who's that, and I'm going to come smash your TV? Well, I'd have to smash my own TV first probably, right? But you get my point. This was a revival. This was people renouncing their sin, repenting of their sin, and being renewed by the Spirit of God to worship him as he had described and prescribed. This revival was faithful. And full. And it was the final revival before God's people were led into Babylonian captivity. There were no good kings after Josiah. Josiah was a great king. And as we read in our opening text today, no one was like him before or after. He was the greatest king. And the greatest king led the greatest revival. It lasted his whole life. Not two or three weeks, 31 years. Wow. Now, speaking of Josiah's time, Kevin DeYoung says this about revival. So what is true revival? It is not generic spirituality, mere emotionalism, or utopian idealism. True revival is marked by a rediscovery of the word of God, a restored sense of the fear of God, a return to God through confession and repentance, a renewed spiritual commitment to God's people as God's people, and finally, a reformation of true piety. Whether we use the word revival or not, this is what we should pray for. And these are the marks we should use to assess every movement of religious fervor, past, present, or future, to which I add my hearty Amen. King Josiah led a true revival among God's people in Judah. But here's the thing. Verse 25 isn't the end of the chapter. It isn't the end of the story. The story of Josiah in the high places teaches us that God has revealed his will for our worship and that there is a price to pay for sin, for false worship. And God was still angry about all those hundreds of years of idolatry before. 
What Josiah did was incredible. It was great, greater than any other person had ever done. But it didn't pay for the hundreds of years of sins before. Now look at verse 26 and 27. Still, again, let's read verse 25 again. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any arise like him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I've removed Israel. And I will cast off the city that I have chosen. Jerusalem in the house of which I said, my name, Jehovah Shammah, shall be there. Yahweh, Shammah. Hmm. And Josiah, after him, the people would descend into idolatry once again. And in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah went into Babylonian captivity. It's interesting. I don't know if the numbers are exactly right. I didn't really search it out. But uh, it seems like the year Josiah died was about the year that they, you know, they, went, they started going to captivity and all that uh, a few years later. But Jeremiah is right in that same time too. And it was 23 years and he had no converts because it was 23 years after Josiah died that they went in. So it's interesting. So there was still a prophet there pleading, pleading, but they were going further and further and further and further down. And then they went into captivity. What are we learning here? But the greatest king led the greatest revival. And that was good. And that is something we need to pray for, to live for, and to die to ourselves for. But now hear me. It wasn't enough. Revival is not enough. It wasn't enough then and it will never be enough now. And that is the point. Reading the glory of verse 25, but then reading the grief of verse 26 and 27, that is meant to tell you something. The faithful life of King Josiah and the true revival of, that he faithfully led. These are all true things. And these things were not enough. It was great in its day. It lasted Josiah's whole life. But it didn't last after that. Actually, it wound up being a colossal failure. This messing with your theology? Because you need the gospel. It was a failure. Josiah could only do so much. He could only reform the nation so much. He could only restore the worship so much. No matter how good he did, it could never be good enough. He could only stop sin so much. The Bible declares that this king was more wonderful than everyone else. But it also says that he was too weak just like everyone else. The greatest king of the Old Testament, Josiah, could not save his people from the wrath of God. However, Josiah's reign points us to another king's reign. 
2 Kings 23, 25 says there was no king as great as Josiah, but Josiah didn't live, verse 26 and 27. He didn't go through the punishment there. He couldn't pay for the people's sin. But Jesus did what Josiah couldn't. Jesus paid for the sins of all God's people for all time. Jesus took the wrath of God on himself and delivered his people from it. Maybe this just shakes you up and it sounds so negative, but think about what we're doing here. We need more than a revival in our day. We need Jesus Christ and his gospel every single day. The greatest king wasn't great enough. How many people you talk to? Well, as long as I'm just glad I'm not like that, not like this other person, whatever it is. Self-righteousness rules. But this tells you something. The greatest king who led the greatest revival. These things were not great enough. Only King Jesus is. Heavenly Father. Cure us of our self-righteousness. Help us see our desperation without you, but our joy with you. Lord, that we can have a revival, but to know that just feeling good and things are prospering and people are turning to you, that we can't just simply rest on revival. We need that born-again walk every day. I pray for a revival in our day, a true one. A reformation, real regeneration, real repentance, real renewal, not just for a little while. I praise God for the little pockets and things that we see, and I pray that real things do happen, and I'm sure in some senses they were. But I want something unmistakable. And even when it is, it's not enough. I'm not chasing revival. I'm not chasing you. You are here. All I have to do is yield. Help us to be truly yielded to you. That you may come upon us in a fresh way. And do things that we thought were so hard to do. And yet we find the strength, the mercy, the grace to do them. That when we're ashamed of our sin, we wouldn't just run and hide. We'd run to the cross. That other people can see your true compassion for your people. And that in seeing that, they would become your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.